Let's pause for prayer. Our Father, we come to you this morning and we, we invite you into our into our presence here. We know you have been here and will continue to be. And I pray, Lord, that you can continue to be honored by our worship. We, uh, we thank you for what you have done for us and what you have promised to do for us in the future. We pray for those of our number that aren't here this morning for different reasons. I pray for, especially for the Grable family as they are traveling and, and will uh, lay their mother, grandmother, and great-grandmother to rest tomorrow. I pray, Lord, you be with them and give them grace for, for the day and safety to and there and back home again. We ask this in your name. Amen. Okay. So there is a uh, there is a uh, verse in Timothy when Paul's writing to Timothy, he says that uh, people that are given the responsibility to preach now and then should be instant in season and out of season. Today we're out of season. And I don't feel very instant, <laughs> to be honest with you. I found out about Thursday that this was going to be my responsibility, and I was not anticipating this responsibility to the first Sunday of September. And I was feeling kind of good about myself that uh, this was happening this way because my my week has been anything but uh, but uh, easy on me. I was to Pennsylvania and back and made hay and put on church roof and and uh, there's been just a lot going on and I didn't really feel like uh, I needed this yet but this is where we find ourselves and so I uh, I trust we can we can still be blessed by looking into God's word and uh, worshiping together here turn with me to Isaiah 33 I promised you the last time I was here that uh, I would finish my these last two ordinances that I want to get to and um, I apologize it is not going to happen again this morning um, the uh, the last two that we're looking at I, I wanted to well I just wanted to put a bit more time into it than a few hours on Saturday and and uh, so I decided to look at a verse here in Isaiah 33 that I read I read past a few weeks ago and I I, I always like this verse and I like I like what it tells us. And so we're gonna we're gonna read verses one through six, and then I'm going to uh, comment a bit more. Isaiah 33, verse one: Woe to thee that spoilest, and thou wast not spoiled, and dealest treacherously, and thou dealt not treacherously with thee, and they dealt not treacherously with thee. When thou shalt cease to spoil, thou shalt be spoiled, and when thou shalt make an end to deal treacherously, they shall deal treacherously with thee. O Lord, be gracious unto us, we have waited for thee. Be thou their arm every morning, our salvation also in the time of trouble. As the noise of the tumult, the people fled. At the lifting up of thyself, the nations were scattered. And your spoil shall be gathered like the gathering of the caterpillar, as the running to and fro of locusts shall he ruin them. The Lord is exalted, for he dwelleth on high. He hath filled Zion with judgment and righteousness. And wisdom and knowledge shall be the stability of thy times and strength of salvation. The fear of the Lord is his treasure. Now the verse I'd like to look at and um, is verse 6 specifically. 
and specifically the first part of verse 6, although I'm going to uh, incorporate the entire verse. Wisdom and knowledge shall be the stability of thy times. Do you like stability? Most of us do. I think it's somewhat of an inherent uh, longing for each person that there's a bit of stability, predictability in a person's life. I really believe that the human race functions best when there is a measure of stability. And, and, and I think that's an obvious um, observation. Um, do you like to be around unstable people? People that have their rapid highs and lows. I mean, you never quite know how they're going to be. Very unstable people. I don't get a lot of joy about uh, uh, being around those, those types of people. How about unstable countries? Is that good places to exist? You know, Venezuela. Uh, you want to live there right now? Very volatile, unstable place. Uh, sometimes we, well, yeah, we know about unstable families. Things just aren't good. It's not good places to be. It's not good places to find oneself. And then when I, when I thought about stability and predictability, I, I can't help but think about how predictable God is, and how he, how he has uh, his desire, and I think we could even pick it up from this verse, is that we do have stability to our lives, and, um, and he in his wisdom has given us a, a very stable, predictable world to live in. Uh, time and space are just predictable. Right now we find ourselves in the middle of August, running toward the end of August, and um, we somewhat know what to expect in August in Minnesota. And I will raise my hand as one person that really enjoys August, September, October in the state of Minnesota. It's usually a pretty good existence. And I know that I will enjoy it next year as well. And why is that? Because I know that August, September, and October will deal basically the same weather every year. I dislike March for the same reason. Because it just deals mud, and I don't really like mud. But it's predictable. I know that. I know what to anticipate. I know when I plant corn, I'm going to get corn. When I plant soybeans, likewise. And Jesus picks up on this idea when he asked the question one day. He says, do men gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles? He's like, things kind of produce what you expect them to. In the animal world, isn't it? I think it's nice anyway that dogs and crocodiles can't interbreed, you know? I mean, what an unpredictable world we would have if there was no set lines, if, if things didn't reproduce after their kind, as, as Genesis says. And we know that dogs make dogs and, and uh, cows make cows. And, and that's a good thing. It's predictable. It's stable. Isaiah here, as many of the prophets was called to sound a warning to an audience that lived in less than stable times. Isaiah would prophesy for 64 years under four kings of Judah, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. Three out of the four were good kings. One was not. Ahaz was not a good king. And during Ahaz's reign, the northern kingdom of Israel was taken captive by Assyria. And if you remember, it wasn't too many years later under the reign of Hezekiah that the Assyrians came down and threatened Judah. And you remember the story of Sennacherib coming there and taunting the, uh, the, the people of Judah and say, hey, the, the God of Israel couldn't save them. He won't do anything for you either. 
and how Hezekiah took that that uh, roll to the uh, to the temple and he spread it out and he read it and he prayed to God and that night there was many many thousands of dead Assyrians because the death angel moved through that camp and destroyed those people and not too many days afterward Sennacherib was actually murdered by his own sons so uh, that's somewhat the troubled times that uh, Isaiah found himself in you know through the Jews storied history uh, there has not been much stability. There wasn't then, and there isn't much now. And um, much of human history is basically a saga and a tale of times that are less than stable. And the irony of the whole thing is, you know, when you look through the history of the world and you and you ascertain that we that we have often lived in very unstable times, the amount of of uh, Time and energy that is expended to try to to make stable times is unbelievable for no more than we actually get. So um, a lot of effort is produced to uh, to try to find stability, and it very seldom is found. My mind was drawn to this verse uh, actually um, here this this past week. Um, some of you that pay attention to the news probably know what I'm going to talk or, or mention. On Wednesday, I think it was, there was this news blip all of a sudden that um, we had this problem, which was called the inverted yield curve. Now, to many of us, that makes little difference, at least uh, right now. But supposedly, um, if, if you have a lot of money and you're looking for places to go with it, you can buy what they call U.S. Treasury bonds. And you can tie, it's basically like lending your money to the U.S. government. You can go buy these bonds, and if you buy a 10-year bond, typically your interest rate on that bond will be higher than if you'd buy a two-year bond. It's just, you know, the greater the risk, the greater the return kind of a thing. So if I'm willing to tie up my money for 10 years with the U.S. government, I should expect more return on that than if I only put it in there for two years. So typically the rate of return is reflected in that, 10 years more, two years less. Well, we had what we called an inverted yield curve here recently, where investing 10 years will produce less interest rate than if you invest for two years. And that's very troubling to economists because, well, then the other part of this is that people are quite willing to invest in 10-year bonds at a at, at what they know will be a lesser rate of return. And so people, economists use this and they say, whoa, this, this isn't right. Uh, if people are basically ready to to in, in kind of a crude terms, go into the backyard and put their money in a glass and bury it, which is pretty much what you're doing if you're investing for 10 years at very little rate of return. That means that they're nervous. They're nervous about things. And this is, this, the last seven times this has happened, this has always preceded a recession. Instability, right? And so there's this nervousness out there. And it's, it's, again, I find it amusing, you know, maybe I shouldn't. But at, at the at the uh, lengths people will go to to say, oh, all is well, all is well, it'll be fine, just fine. You know, there's a little blip here, and it'll it'll just be good. Yes, the last seven times it happened. Yes, it did predict it, but it doesn't necessarily mean it'll happen again. You know, you, you hear all this, and you're like, yeah, right. So anyway, the moral of the story is this: if you're looking for stability. Don't expect the U.S. Treasury bonds to give that to you. Okay, it isn't going to happen. All it's going to do is make you nervous. I would like to um, 
suggest to you this morning that this verse here is the key to real stability. And I would like to just break this verse apart just a little bit and look at it. I think there's four things here in this verse that that are keys to finding stability in our times. It is the strength of salvation, the fear of the Lord, and wisdom and knowledge. If we can have those four ingredients, I think we will be way down the road to finding stability in our life. So I would like to just look at these four things. Stability starts with the strength of salvation. A person who is not a saved person, need I, is, is it, is it necessary for me to suggest to you that that person is not stable? The psalmist says that the wicked are like a troubled sea. The wicked people are not saved people. And the psalmist says a troubled sea. Now, I don't know if you've ever been by troubled water, but troubled water is not exactly something that's stable. A word that I find that is, is very, almost a, uh, an antonym to the word stable is a state of confusion. When you're confused, you're not very stable. And I was interested how many times in the Bible when it talks about being in a state of confusion, it immediately links it with people that are not saved. And I'm going to read to you just a few of these verses. If you remember with me, when Daniel was praying to the Lord and interceding for his people there in Daniel 9, there's a verse that goes like this. He says, O Lord, to us belongeth confusion of faith because we have sinned against you. All right? Confusion and sin, same sentence. Jeremiah had something similar to say. He says, We lie down in our shame. Our confusion covereth us, for we have sinned against the Lord our God. We and our fathers, even from our youth to this day, have we not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God? And James, in the New Testament, he says, Where envying and strife is, there is confusion and every evil work. Some of the loveliest word pictures, on the other hand, of stability, is found in, well, actually just a few verses before the verses that we read here. And I'm going to read them in, in Isaiah 32, verses 17 and 18. I think this is a word picture of stability and uh, something desirable. It says, "...in the work of righteousness shall be peace." And the effect of righteousness, quietness, and assurance forever. And my people shall dwell in peaceable habitations, in sure dwellings, and in quiet resting places. Does that sound like stability to you? It sure does to me. As I was just thinking of, of examples of, of uh, people that experience stability from, from an encounter with the Lord, I, I couldn't think of a better one than that... Uh, demoniac there in the the country of the Gadarenes. You remember the story where Jesus comes to this country and he finds this man naked, running wild in a graveyard. And we, you know, I don't I don't know if we stop and actually think about that sometimes the way the way we could or should. But just suppose you you just picture the the nearest graveyard to your place and just suppose that there was a man that ran around there naked like a wild animal, never lived in a house, 
And the, every once in a while, the cops would come out there, and, and they would use tasers and, and so on, and they would actually get the guy subdued long enough to get cuffs on him, and he'd snap the cuffs. Now, if there was such a person in such a place in your neighborhood, and you had two ways to go to town, you could either go past that graveyard or you could go another way, which way do you suppose you'd choose to go? I'd take the long way around. I wouldn't be going past the graveyard. That's just the way it would be. I wouldn't ride bike past that place, okay? So this is, this is the kind of person that we have. And out in the field there, you know, there's these pigs um, that, are, that are grazing away there, or whatever pigs all do. And we know the story, how that Jesus encountered this, this demoniac, and he, he tells those demons to come out of that man, and they did. They went into the pigs. The pigs run into the, into the ocean there and are drowned. Did that man have a change? Did he go from unstable to stable? He did. Immediately he's clothed, he's sitting down, and he's in his right mind. What, what a picture of stability that comes to a man when he experiences salvation. The interesting thing is the townspeople, rather than applauding this event, they say, could you leave our country, please? We're worried about the pigs. We don't want any more pigs to drown. Apparently, they, they, they could have cared less that they can now go past the graveyard to go to town. They're worried about Jesus leaving, leaving town because apparently they were worried about the pigs. It doesn't really say that, but they, they begged Jesus to leave town because of economic loss. How about us? Where are we at with this thing? I think we do well to, if we do not have a sense of stability in our lives, could it possibly be that we have not experienced what Isaiah calls here the strength of salvation, the strength of it? I like that word picture. You know, strength is something we're, we're all about. We, we like to be strong. But you want strength. It's found in salvation. <clears throat> Unsafe persons are very volatile, moody, easily offended, always looking out for themselves. We, we know these people. All of us know somebody like that. Paul says that it's the preaching of the cross that is foolishness to those that perish. But unto those who are being saved, it is the power of God. Stability starts with the strength of salvation. Number two, stability is maintained by a fear of the Lord. And again, what is the fear of the Lord? We have to ascertain what that is before we can understand how stability is maintained by this. Well, the proverb writer, I'm, so, I'm sorry, not the proverb writer. Well, I think it, it might have been, but Ecclesiastes, who we think is, uh, is the writer is, is probably Solomon. He said, if you want to hear the conclusion of the whole matter, he said, this is what I have concluded. And remember, Solomon is dubbed the wisest man that ever walked. He said, fear God and keep his commandments. Now, how easy is that? That's the conclusion. I also like how Peter succinctly puts it in 1 Peter 2.17. He has four short sentences. He said, and, and 
and, and, and this is somewhat of a summary of a person that is going to enjoy, while he doesn't say stability in his life, I really believe that's what it wound up being. He says, honor all men, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. It's just pretty simple. Well, let's flesh this out a little bit. I believe the fear of the Lord, according to these verses, are tightly tied to simple, happy obedience to the simple promises and instructions of God. Very, very simple. You know, have you ever in, you know, observed an out-of-control situation or an out-of-control family or, or anything that is, is out of control? Usually, there are some obvious, simple things that could be done to bring that thing back into control, but it's just being avoided. It's being neglected. And uh, so we have this out-of-control situation. And I really think that the reason people find themselves in the quagmire that they do, and sometimes we even do, is because we just simply are, are not, um, we can't bring ourselves to actually just obey some simple mandates that God gives us for a good life. You know, I, I recently was, uh, was talking with a person, and we were talking about a very simple problem that this person had in his life. And I, I pointed out a simple biblical solution. And he said, um, well, you don't interpret that the same way I do. Well, that was the whole problem. It didn't need interpretation. <laughs> I mean, you don't have to interpret certain things. It's just there. You have to do it. As soon as you begin to interpret it, you run into trouble, see. You know, in, uh, in um, Romans 1, it talks about people that are unwilling to retain God in their knowledge. That's a problem, folks. That's a real problem. Paul in 1 Corinthians talks about the Jews and the Greeks, and he says, the Jews require a sign and the Greeks seek after wisdom. And in that context, what he's saying there is the reason the Jews and the Greeks re reject God is because the Jews want a sign. They want to be sure. And we remember that, how that they demanded of Jesus that they have a sign that he was really Jesus. And the Greeks said the thing doesn't follow logic. It just isn't logical. And since it's not logic, we can't go there. Well, you know, there's times that to, to it would be to, to our best um, existence if we would just forget about the logic and we would just simply obey. If we demand that everything must have some kind of, uh, must follow some sort of logical criteria that we have invented or that we have to interpret it, we probably will end up with very unstable times. There's another verse here that talks about the fear of the Lord I'd like to point you to. In Proverbs 16.6, 6, it goes like this, By mercy and truth, iniquity is purged. And by the fear of the Lord, men depart from evil. The fear of God will keep us from evil. And my mind immediately went to, to the story of Joseph whenever he was caught there and Potiphar's wife was hounding him, it would seem almost daily, to commit this grievous sin with her. And Joseph says, how can I do this great sin and sin against God? How can I do that? It kept him from evil. The fear of the Lord kept him from evil. There's two other words in that verse that I'd like to just quickly point out. 
or I shouldn't say two others, but, but the other word is iniquity. Sometimes we think of iniquity and sin and transgression and, and all these words as somewhat synonyms, and they are in many ways. But the word iniquity literally means to bend or to distort. I would like to, again, just just encourage us that when we begin to bend or distort the Bible, that's when we run into instable times. The Bible is a very simple book to understand, and the fear of the Lord will prohibit a person from bending and distorting it. What is good today was good 500 years ago, and it will be good 500 years hence. It doesn't need our help, and that will bring stability to our lives and to our posterity's life. Turn with me to Malachi 3 for the last uh, last reading here. One of the uh, a very favorite uh, passage of mine. If you don't know where Malachi is, you find Matthew and hang a left. And it's right there. Last book of the Old Testament. So Mal- Malachi 3, verses uh, 13 to 18, read like this. Your words, now this is the people of Israel speaking against God. Your words have been stout against me, saith the Lord. Yet ye say, this is the, this is the people of Israel saying, what have we spoken so much against thee? Ye have said, it is vain to serve God. And what profit is it that we have kept his ordinance, and that we have walked mournfully before the Lord God of hosts? And now we call the proud happy, yea, they that work wickedness are set up, yea, they that tempt God are even delivered. Then they that feared the Lord spake off one to another, and the Lord hearkened and heard it. And a book of remembrance was written before him for them, for them that feared the Lord, and that thought upon his name. And they shall be mine, saith the Lord of hosts, in that day when I make up my jewels, and I will spare them as a man spareth his own son that serveth him. Then you shall return and discern between righteousness, righteous and the wicked, between him that serveth God and him that serveth him not. I believe, according to these verses, that the fear of the Lord will stymie skepticism and cynicism and will help us appreciate godly fellowship and godly counsel. That's that's pretty much the, the divider here in these verses. In the first couple of verses, you have these people saying, what has it profited us to serve God? Aren't the wicked as good off as we are? Um, you know, um, yeah. We have walked in his ordinances, and things aren't really any different for us. But then in verse 16 it says, but there's another segment of people that feared the Lord. And these people spoke off one to another. And, and, and you have to wonder now, well, what was the difference? Well, I really think what the difference was is that there was mutual encouragement that those that feared the Lord found in their fellow pilgrims, their fellow uh, walkers in the way. And the folks that were cynical, it would feel like all they wanted to do is have an outward look. They weren't really that... Uh, excited about being encouraged or weren't looking for encouragement from their fellow pilgrims, but they were uh, looking at all the things that didn't make any sense. You know, the wicked are prospering and, and we're serving the Lord and it doesn't really seem to be paying off that much. Very, very cynical. I think, uh, I think if we don't fear God, we will tend toward being cynical about God rather than recognizing that God's performance can't be analyzed by man's responses. 
That's pretty much what was happening here. They were saying, God's not fair. We're serving God and we're not really getting any reward for it. You know, how many times have you heard somebody say, you know, I quit going to church because, you know, it's just, it's just a place where hypocrites go. That's what, that's where it is. You know, hypocrites. I've heard that so many times. Well, yeah, there are hypocrites there. There, there are. There are probably not any churches around that don't have a few of them in there. But the fact of the matter is, just because that's the case, is that an excuse for you not to do what you should do? Is that an excuse for you not to fear the Lord? I would say probably not. You know, today's mantra is, be your own man. You have a right to believe what you want to. Nobody can tell me what to do. And I will decide whether I want to listen to you or whether I don't. Or I'll even decide if I want to listen to God himself. You know, Pharaoh had that same attitude. Who is the Lord? But I should obey his voice. Well, friends, if we want stability in our times, we will learn to fear God and keep his commandments. The last one I want to look at is this thing of wisdom and knowledge. Wisdom and knowledge, I believe, secures our stability. You know, wisdom and knowledge are used very interchangeably in the Bible and very often found in the same verse, same sentence. They're a bit different, and yet often they go together. And I would like to just try to pull them apart and then bring them back together again. So knowledge is basically the accumulation of factual information. So that's knowledge. You, You know something. Wisdom is when we take that knowledge, take those facts, and we put them to context, and we put application to those facts, and we begin to make decisions based on that knowledge and applied wisdom to that knowledge, to those facts. And I would say, I would venture to say that many times wisdom is almost synonymous with being a visionary. So in other words, what, what actually would be the definition of a wise person? Well, there'd be many, maybe a different things we could say, but a wise person is somebody that can take all these facts that he has, he can see it with an eternal perspective, he runs that through an eternal filter, and then he is willing to make a decision that maybe it doesn't even look very wise to people. I had to think of this in our in our Sunday school lesson today where Ruth decided to go with her mother-in-law to that land of Israel there. Now, was that a wise decision? Well, it certainly was. But it, it may not have appeared wise to some people. But what Ruth did that day is she made a decision that was good for the entire human race. Did you ever think about that? It was through Ruth that we have, that Jesus, Jesus came through that lineage, okay? So you and I are beneficiaries of that, of that particular decision that Ruth made that day. A wise person is a person that makes a decision, and that decision is good for today. It is good 10 years from now. He doesn't regret it 20 years from now, and his grandchildren will thank him for it. You know, one of the hallmarks that the Bible tells us will be of the of the last days is that knowledge will increase. And I think I think we have to make a little distinction here that there is there is worldly knowledge and then there is biblical spiritual knowledge. Now those two knowledges share the same lane sometimes, all right? 
But sometimes they don't. And in fact, sometimes they're actually on a completely different road. Contextually, the knowledge that it will increase at the end of time is never really given in, in uh, is not given positive reviews. In Daniel 12, it talks about um, how that at the, at the, near the end, it says many will run to and fro and knowledge will be increased. In 2 Timothy, Paul talks about people that are ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of truth. And, and I don't need to convince you of this. I mean, you all understand that that knowledge and and applied knowledge has been absolutely. I mean, it just proliferates at our time. It's it's unbelievable. I mean, I I'm infatuated currently with the whole thing of uh, how a person can take an airplane and get the thing to go up and fly, you know, and comes back down, and and it all works. And to think that you know, just a little over a hundred years ago, we couldn't even get anything off the ground. And now we have these millions of people that are in the air every day. It's unbelievable. But you know, the accumulation of information will never do us any real good if the premise for that accumulation is not based on eternal truth. And I think you know that. So how? what are some descriptors of a person that is pursuing truth-based knowledge, eternal knowledge? Well, to go back to uh, another point we uh, we have already looked at, this person will have a proper fear of God. And a very familiar verse, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That's the spar- starting point. Without the fear of the Lord, the gathering of knowledge actually could be detrimental to you. Do you realize that? If you are pursuing knowledge that is not based in truth, the whole thing could actually be to your to your uh, eventual undoing. Another descriptor of a, of a person that's pursuing truth-based knowledge is that he will live a careful Christian life. Hebrews 10 talks about people that sin willfully after they have received the knowledge of the truth. All right, so you understand what that's saying there. This person knew the truth, and then he willfully decided he was going to just ignore that truth. Not a wise thing. In Second Peter, it has something that's very similar. Peter says, For if after a person has escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, and he again becomes entangled therein, and he is overcome by them, the latter end is worse for that man than the beginning. Again, it behooves us to understand that if we are if we are uh, serious about living a, a godly life and following pursuing truth based knowledge, we're going to live a very careful Christian life. James, the book of James, in James one, there's this reference to a double minded man, and I don't know if you've ever thought a bit about what a double minded man is. But James says a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. So it's, it's the opposite of stability here. He's unstable in all his ways. Well, a double-minded man, as I understand it, is a man that is too attached to this world to be fully committed to Christ. And so depending on his situation, when he's with the Christians, he talks like a Christian. Well, when he's with somebody that's not a Christian... He's good with that too. He, he can work in that situation as well. He's double-minded and he's unstable. Again, 
not a person that is living a careful Christian life. Another descriptor of a person that is pursuing faith, truth-based knowledge is he leads a respectable, humble life that others can admire and emulate. In James 3, it says, Who is a wise man and endued with knowledge among you? Let him show out of a good conversation his works with meekness of wisdom. In other words, that's a, that's a, a King James version of saying, You'll know one when you see one. He won't be all that hard to spot. A person that's pursuing truth-based knowledge is a person that will not easily cast aside sound teaching. I'm always impressed with uh, Paul when he writes to Timothy. He says, Timothy, he says, I want you to continue in the things which you have learned and you have been assured of because you know of whom you have learned them. And who did he learn them from? his mother and his grandmother. And I'm sure Paul as well and other godly people in his lives. But Paul's appealing to Timothy. He said, I want you to just sit up and take notice to the people that taught you the right thing. He said, those people were good people. And you you owe it to yourself and to your soul to follow those, those teachings. Because he says they come from the Holy Scriptures and it is able to make you wise unto salvation through Jesus. In conclusion, let's turn to James 3, and we're going to um, just um, quickly run down through the, the um, description that James gives of people that are wise. Again, I told you that wisdom and knowledge are closely tied, and they are. And James here says there's some very, very easy markers that we can, uh, we can get a hold of here that you can know whether you and others have what is godly wisdom. So let's just read James 3, 13 to 18. Who is a wise man and a dude with knowledge among you? Let him show out of a good conversation his works with meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter envying and strife in your hearts, glory not and lie not against the truth. This wisdom descendeth not from above, but is earthly, sensual, devilish. For where envying and strife is, there is confusion and every evil work. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, and easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace of them that make peace. Now let me just recap that. What what James is saying here is that in verse 13, he says, only wise people are really blessed with true knowledge. In verse 14, he says, A wise person will always avoid bitter envy and strife. You know, a person that's hard to get along with is hardly a wise person. And then in verse 17, he has this full commentary of of what true wisdom looks like. He said, A wise person is pure. He is one of those people that is unspotted from the world that James talks about in another place. He goes, A wise man is peaceable. This man is not known to be immersed in a lot of drama because peace is a priority to him. So he's quick to drop grievances. He's quick to do what Jesus said. Agree with your adversary quickly while you are in the way with him. He's willing to assume that others are making good faith efforts to attain eternal life as well. 
A wise man treats people politely and with Christian grace. He's gentle. He is easy to be entreated. He is approachable. He's not quickly offended. He is full of mercy, quickly extends grace and mercy. He's without partiality. He's not exclusive. Everyone gets a fair and unbiased shake from this man. He is without hypocrisy. You know, this is a guy that is the same on Thursday as he is on Sunday. There's no secrets in his life. His life is ordered so that if he is falsely accused or he's talked about, he's not that bothered about it because he knows that God is his judge and his life is not one of hypocrisy, so he don't have to get rankled about it. He's not concerned about these things. You know, I, going back to <clears throat> some of the activities of my week, as I, as I told you, Tuesday I was at my, my cousin's funeral that... Um, I had grown up with, had done a lot with uh, as a child. I hadn't seen him much in the last few decades. But uh, anyway, um, at that funeral, there was, well, the, uh, the visitation especially, there was literally hundreds, if not over a thousand people there. It was just an awful lot of people. And, uh, you know, when you don't see people for 25 years, um, you know, Time is hard on us, and, and you don't necessarily always recognize people either, you know. But those that I did, I, I was blessed by the many people that I looked at that day, and I could say, these people are obviously living stable lives. And praise God for that. What an encouragement to not see people for a few decades or more, and you come back, and they're just they're just the same people that they always were. And, and you can just tell that their lives are rooted on something more than uh, than the unstable society that we live in, but you know, then there's the um, there's the few that obviously have made a few poor choices, and the instability simply shows. I couldn't help but think about the parable that Jesus gave of the wise and the foolish man. You know, both of them built houses. And for a time, they both stood. And for a time, nobody knew the difference. But then one day, things got unstable, okay? And the one house stood and the other one didn't. And the reason the one did not stand was because back some years earlier, he had made some very unwise decisions. And he decided, I can build my house on sand, and I can make, I can, I'll take that gamble that that thing will stand when the storm comes. And when the storm came, it didn't stand. It didn't. Poor choice. And it was there for the world to see that he had made a very, very, very poor poor choice. Both houses were affected by the same storm. But stability was only experienced by one. That's not much difference than you and I today. You know, the real estate market will always ebb and flow. It always will. The stock market will always rise and fall, and the mutual funds will at times invert. Nations will always come and go, but that does not have to affect our stability if we are building on a rock. It absolutely doesn't. Our houses can be founded on rocks. Brothers and sisters today, I'm glad to say that I believe that I exist among people that are building on a stable rock. And I would like to encourage you 
for the sake of the people around you, for the sake of the church, for the sake of your families, and for the sake of your souls. Let's continue to build that way. Let's kneel for prayer. Dear God, we come to you this morning and we are so happy that we can know you. And that no matter what the times may bring us, and Lord, we we certainly do not know what, what that could be, that we can have stability, that we can be grounded and founded on a rock. So Lord, I pray that you would help us to realize the uh, the imperative that we have to build on rock and that we can enjoy stability despite very much instability in our times. Bless us together as we move from this place today, and I pray that we could uh, continue to worship you, that we can continue to bless you, that we could continue to be a testimony for you in our various locations and wherever you would place us this coming week. We ask this in your name.